Good evening. In September, a letter written by a Chris Webster from Abergavenny received a lot of attention on social media. In it, Webster noted that 65% of voters over 65 had voted to leave in the EU referendum, and he proposes that pensioners should now pay to make up for the fall in GDP anticipated to be caused by Brexit. Webster writes, Of course, many old people will lose out, but they will be reassured by empty promises from wealthy politicians, and they can starve, happy in the knowledge that it's a price worth paying for Brexit. The letter ends, Never mind cake, let them eat sovereignty. I think that note pithily captures some key aspects of popular responses to the recent Brexit vote. It alludes to the widespread sense that a large part of the motivation for voting leave was something to do with sovereignty, even if that gain were to come with substantial economic costs. It also gestures to the impression that many Remainers scoff at this prioritising of something apparently nebulous like sovereignty over concrete economic interests. So today we're going to be exploring the concept of sovereignty from philosophical, historical, political and international law perspectives to see if we can get some kind of grip on this crucial idea. What exactly is it? What are or ought to be the limits of sovereignty? Why is it so highly prized? And indeed, is it still a useful organising concept in the 21st century? I'm Sarah Fine from the Department of Philosophy at King's College London and fellow here at the Forum. And with me to debate these fascinating issues, we have an exciting panel, and I'm delighted to welcome them. We have next to me Serena Ferrente, who is a senior lecturer in medieval European history at King's College London. Her research interests include Italy and the Mediterranean in late Middle Ages and the Renaissance, women, gender, and the state, and late medieval and Renaissance political thought. She's published widely in English and Italian on these subjects, including a very informative essay on Popolo and law, late medieval sovereignty in Marsilius and the jurists. And her book, The 15th Century, Imagination and Experience, is forthcoming with Oxford University Press. Next to Serena, we have David Runciman, who's head of the Department of um, Politics and International Studies at Cambridge and Professor of Politics and Fellow of Trinity Hall. He's one of the leads for the Conspiracy and Democracy Project at Cambridge, and he hosts the hugely successful Talking Politics podcast, which comes highly recommended. He writes regularly for the London Review of Books and The Guardian and is the author of numerous books, including The Confidence Trap, Political Hypocrisy, and Pluralism and the Personality of the State. And finally, we have Carmen Pavel, who's lecturer in international politics and director of the Philosophy, Politics, and Economics degree program at King's College London. She specialises in political philosophy and the history of political thought with interests in international justice, international law, liberal theory and ethics and public policy. And she's the author of Divided Sovereignty, which considers the question of how to constrain states which commit severe abuses against their citizens. And she's also co-editor of the forthcoming Oxford Handbook of Freedom. Thank you very much for joining us. So my first question to the panel is the deceptively simple one, 
What is sovereignty? And we're going to start with Serena. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you all for coming. Uh, it is not an easy question, and uh, the, answer, um, the answer would require a long time. But from my perspective, which is that of a historian, really, um, sovereignty has, uh, again, a deceptively easy-to-locate starting point because the word really only appears in the 16th century. And we generally credit Jean Baudin with coming up with this word, souveraineté, in his book published in 1576, The Six Books of the Republic. And um, it was an enormously successful word uh, because it served very important purposes. And from the 17th century onward, we find it, we find it really at the center of political reflection. Um, I would like to argue that the problem of sovereignty actually predates Baudin. It's actually there in antiquity, it's there in the Middle Ages. Why? Because one element in sovereignty is a notion of absolute and ultimate power. So what sovereignty provides as a concept is a solution to the question, to use the American expression, where does the buck stop? That is, if we imagine power as in some way hierarchical, what is the top of that hierarchy? Um, or what is the ultimate site where political power is located and, um, and from which all kinds of transfer of power, or delegation of power originates? So um, there was a really interesting idea uh, in Roman law that connected the idea of the prince, the princeps, which was the word used to define the emperor, really, in the Corpus Juris Civilis, um, as the ultimate sovereign. And so this idea of the prince or the emperor was very much used by, for example, medieval writers um, to appropriate this kind of absolute powers. And there were several entities that were vying for this notion of absolute power, ultimate power. And these entities were primarily the church and the Holy Roman Empire, who felt more entitled than others to this kind of ultimate power. But there were also things or entities such as kingdoms or dukedoms, and importantly, um, forms of collective rules, such as the city-states and republics. So everyone was trying. Um, it was mostly a battle of ideas, but sometimes took the form of actual battles. <laughs> everyone was aiming for this ultimate um, concept of power. Once Baudin and his colleagues sort of agree that sovereignty is the word for it, then sovereignty becomes really an essential feature um, of uh, uh, the early modern, later modern, uh, concept of the state. So uh, it's from the early modern period onwards that we see um, sovereignty being ascribed particularly to an entity that we could call the state. This happens primarily in Europe, and I think an interesting thing that hasn't perhaps been done enough is to trace the pre-modern history of the concept of sovereignty or, or similar concepts outside of Europe, actually. But in Europe, uh, sort of the idea of sovereignty suddenly contributes to a landscape, a political landscape that is imagined as populated by all these entities that are states and that are all sovereign and are somehow, on some level, all equal because of that. So they're all sovereign in the same way. Although in practice, 
they're obviously not equal. Some of them are very weak, some of them are very powerful, some of them are really self-sufficient, for example, economically, and others are really dependent. So the fictional nature of the concept of sovereignty should always be central in any discussion of it. It is a powerful fiction that helps with solving certain legal problems and also it helps with arguing certain political points but that really is difficult sometimes to find in the reality of politics and state building. So from the, seventh, from the 18th century, the late 18th century onwards, then the idea of sovereignty is really something that appears in, for example, movements for the creation of new constitution, for the first sort of uh, republican constitutions in the United States and in revolutionary France. Now, I don't know if I have enough time for this, but one important element is that the sovereignty of the modern world, that is from the late 18th century onward, is very often ascribed to something called the people. This, again, is not necessarily a modern uh, invention. There was a very strong tradition, a recognizable one, that goes back to antiquity, that locates a sovereignty with the people. Um, this means that the people, because the reality was that in fact the people as a collective were not really seen as governing. So how come they're sovereign but they're not governing? Well, this is because at some point in the past or in a hypothetical past they have transferred part of a whole of their sovereignty to some other entities. And the nature of this transfer exercised political writers quite a lot because uh, when did it take place, in what form, was it partial, was it complete, could it be revoked, is it a transfer that happens once and for all or is it something that can be revoked by the actual sovereign. Now, all of these questions I think have been asked repeatedly over the history of Western European thought and are still very uh, topical. Um, someone like Hobbes thought that this sort of transfer of rights that create the corporate sovereign, once it happens, it cannot really be revoked. And so everyone has to submit to the sovereign because this transfer has happened once and for all. Um, this idea of the transfer actually comes from Roman law and comes from uh, um, the explanation that Roman law gives for the origins of the authority of the emperor. So Rome was a republic, right? How does Rome get from a republican state form to a monarchic one that is an empire? Well, it's because the people and the Senate of Rome at some point transferred their power to the emperor. So the origins of the emperor's authority are still in the people, but a transfer has happened and now he is in charge. And now the question is, uh, what if he misbehaves? What if the people are not happy anymore with the way their powers are being exercised? Uh, what are the means and the circumstances where they can uh, hold the ruler accountable and perhaps withdraw the powers and get them back? I think this is a really an exciting question. I must say I hadn't quite imagined the sovereignty would come again to the fore in such a sort of public way, but um, it is interesting from um, the perspective of a historian of political thought that it, it does so. 
Wonderful. Thank you, Serena. I think that's the perfect moment to move on to David. Fictions, transfer. Okay, so I, I mean, I agree. It's, uh, I'm going to also give a kind of historical answer, but I completely agree that in any political system, this question is always going to arise. It's hard to imagine living in any kind of political society and people not asking sometimes who's the ultimate decision maker, who finally gets to settle a question. So I think it's uh, almost a timeless concept, but there's something distinctive about the modern version of it. And I think what's distinctive about the modern version is worth trying to capture because I think it's present in our politics too. So I'm going to pick one of the people that was just mentioned, Hobbes, and I think he gives a little snapshot of what's distinctive about the modern concepts. And, And also he gives a very radical idea of sovereignty, but you'll hear echoes, I think, of where we are now, and we'll get to Brexit soon enough from Hobbes to Brexit. Um, One way to frame this is sovereignty has an internal and an external quality, and we'll probably talk a bit more about the external, what does it mean about relations between states, so I'll park that. But it also raises questions inside a state. Who is sovereign? There's a who question. What does the sovereign get to decide about? And where does the jurisdiction run? What's the area it covers? So Hobbes had some really distinctive answers to those questions that I think are very modern. So the who question, his answer was, doesn't matter. What matters is that there should be a sovereign. And I think that does mark a break with what went before. I think almost every political thinker until that time, we can argue about that, thought that you had to have an answer to the who question, which was, it's the king or it's the church or it's this, it comes from God, it comes from this source, it comes from that source. Whereas for Hobbes, the key thing was, if you get into those arguments, you won't end up with sovereignty because people won't agree. What you need is an agreement that you should have a sovereign. And that agreement is more important than any decision about who exercises that power. So though Hobbes is associated with a kind of monarchical rule, actually he said it's fine. It could be a parliament, it could be a king, it could be the whole people, it could be a queen, it could be an aristocracy. Someone needs to decide. So... The first radical thing is, doesn't matter who it is. Second question is, what? Hobbes says, doesn't matter what. (laughs) The sovereign decides. So again, you can't limit the scope of the decision-making. I think Hobbes was, was absolutely explicitly clear that no sovereign can decide on everything. So anyone who thinks that Hobbes leads to totalitarianism is completely wrong. I mean, Hobbes explicitly says, it's absurd to think that any political decision-making entity could decide for all of us, all of our important decisions and Hobbes thought I I think that most sovereigns would probably decide on quite little Uh, there there was for Hobbes a core it was hard to imagine sovereignty without certain kinds of decisions being taken ironically one of them was the currency for Hobbes he thought you couldn't really be sovereign if you didn't decide in your state what counted as money which is one reason I would say that Hobbes would think a bigger threat to sovereignty than the EU would be bitcoin (laughs) Bitcoin is the death of sovereignty. We'll probably get onto that, or maybe we won't. Um, but he also thought that the basic decision-making was about war and peace, safety, security. <clears throat> then there's the question about where, and this is the last point I want to make, but I think this is the important one. We tend to think that sovereignty is defined by its geographical limits because sovereign states have borders, Sovereign states appear on maps. This map of Europe of sovereign states in this period is all about where you draw the line. 
But I think this kind of answer that we, we as a group of people living in a political community decide we must have a sovereign and we must let that sovereign decide the limits of sovereign power, where it goes. So the key for Hobbes is that the sovereign doesn't decide everything, but the sovereign can decide on anything. But where? Hobbes doesn't really have an answer to that question because he thinks the where is defined by the people. So what makes sovereign power have its extent is who are the people who accept it. I mean, this is where there's that tension between where does it really come from? Does it come from the people? Because for Hobbes, the sovereign is not really the people. The sovereign is the decision-making entity that the people have empowered. But you know the limits of that power by knowing who are the people who accept that power. And out of that, you get borders and limits, because if enough people in a given territory accept that power, then anyone who doesn't can be forced to accept it. And also, if enough people accept that power, then the person who has that power can decide who can join in, who comes in, who leaves. So you get territory, borders, limits, limits to immigration, among other things, not because that defines sovereignty on the Hobbes account. Hobbes doesn't say sovereignty is defined by the sovereign decides about immigration. But Hobbes says sovereignty is defined by the fact that the people have empowered the sovereign and that power will lead to the capacity to decide on those questions. And it is an important difference because in Hobbes' terms, the sovereign does not have to decide on immigration. I mean, that's part of it. Probably I think he thought that you need at some point some distinction between who belongs and who doesn't. But basically, the distinction is if enough people accept the sovereign then the limits can be defined by the power that that gives the sovereign to create limits. And what that means, and this is the last thing I'll say, is that the central theme, and this does pick up on that longer history, the central theme in the modern conception of sovereignty is not, I think, where is the border, who guards the border, where does this state end and this state begin. The central theme is what's the relationship between the people who give the sovereign that power and the power of the sovereign to determine the scope of that people. And it's almost a bit paradoxical, in that it's not at all obvious how that relationship's meant to work. So the people empower the sovereign, but the sovereign decides on the people. And I think that runs through to 21st century politics. The tension between those two things is still there. And there is no easy answer to that question, and we'll come on to it maybe when we talk more about Brexit and the, the limits of contemporary sovereignty. But you see that tension right the way through to what's going on in contemporary British politics and the question of where sovereignty really resides because we have parliamentary sovereignty, we have popular sovereignty, we have them both at the same time, Mm. we have a referendum, we have a parliament who decides on what that referendum (coughs) means. And that tension is not some kind of anomaly in the history of modern sovereignty. That tension is modern sovereignty and so that tension defines modern politics. Wonderful, thank you. And on to Carmen, who I think is going to say a little something about sovereignty in the international law context. Right. So um, sovereignty in the international law context is very much related to the question of what happens to sovereign states inside. And, and both Serena and David basically explain that what sovereignty means is the authority of political communities or the institutions of those political communities to have ultimate power, ultimate authority, ultimate decision jurisdiction and control over a given territory and population. And in international law, there's great deference to this idea that sovereign states should be entitled to have very strong 
even ultimate authority over their own citizens and territories. In fact, some of the basic principles of international law show great respect for state sovereignties. So the principles such as, for example, non-interference in the internal affairs of a state, the principles such as sovereign equality, territorial integrity, national self-determination. What's also interesting about international law and its relationship with sovereignty is that it has gradually moved away from an absolutist conception of sovereignty. But it has a very ambiguous and conflicting sort of notion of limits that can be placed on sovereign states. So, for example, um, there are limits having to do, established especially after the Second World War, with how states can treat their own citizens, right? So there are conventions against genocide, crimes against humanity, and other widespread abuses that states commit against their own citizens. And on some certain rules of international law basically place limits on the authority of, a, of, of, of every state to uh, commit abuses against their own citizens. But those rules are very ambiguous and conflicting, such that states basically are left to interpret those rules in sort of in the way that is most um, uh, beneficial to serve their own interests at the moment. So, for example, Article 2 of the UN Charter says, well, the UN and the international community cannot intervene in matters which are within the essential um, domestic jurisdiction of a state. And states have interpreted that and pretty much um, uh, to imply that actually no intervention is ever justified in their own internal affairs. An example is Syria, for example. So Syria, when the the information became public that Syria was using uh, chemical weapons against its own citizens, which is a crime against humanity, states that are part of the Security Council have tried to adopt measures to basically limit the ability of the Syrian state to perpetrate those attacks. But Russia and China very much opposed any limitation on the authority of Syria, the Syrian state to do that, and they argue precisely that any such measure would contravene, would violate the Syrian state's sovereignty. And both a defender and an opponent of, of the limitation of the Syrian state would have resources in international law to do that. So while international law has moved sort of slightly away from an absolute conception of of sovereignty, it hasn't yet created the rules that make those limits effective and widely accepted as legitimate. That evolution has been quite recent, which is partly why the rules are so weak. Up until the Second World War, state sovereignty was still very much understood in an absolutist term in international law, but it was the atrocities perpetrated during the Second World War, and particularly the Holocaust, that made the international community really recoil in in horror at the abuses that states can commit against their own citizens and decide that there have to be certain rules according to which we hold states accountable for the actions that they take. And so that's the precise moment. It was the Nuremberg trials the military tribunals for the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials that started a very significant shift 
and the idea that state sovereignty has to be limited and that maybe the buck cannot stop ultimately just with the institutions of the sovereign state, that there has to be some sort of accountability outside of the state system in order for states to responsibly discharge of their sovereign responsibilities to their own citizens. Uh, but that has evolved and fits and starts. There have been since many ad hoc tribunals, even the International Criminal Court. But all of these uh, international institutions, uh, as we can see in the news, their authority is very much questioned, uh, contested. Their legitimacy is very much um, is very much challenged by states that do not really welcome uh, intrusions with their sovereign prerogatives. And the U.S. is, for example, the United States is a good example of that very ambivalent attitude to limitations on sovereignty. The U.S. often supports limitations on the sovereign authority of other states. It has, for example, been a great supporter of establishing ad hoc tribunals to um, uh, bring perpetrators of great uh, humanitarian tragedies to justice, but it has resisted that its own public officials and its own citizens be uh, held accountable to the same standards. So, for example, it has refused to join the International Criminal Court on the grounds that it alone should have ultimate jurisdiction on um, the kinds of crimes that its citizens and its uh, members of its military and its political officials can, um, can commit. And so there's this kind of organized hypocrisy at this point in international politics where on the one hand we have rules that try to limit state authority, but because those rules are so weak, states can sort of simultaneously argue that certain uh, abuses should be limited, but at the same time extricate themselves from those limits so there's no sort of universally accepted limitation on state sovereignty. Okay, brilliant. Thanks so much. That's an excellent start to our evening. And we're going to go on in a minute to say some more about the limits of sovereignty and about why sovereignty is important. But before we do that, I'd like to open the floor to you to see if you've got any questions about what we've heard so far. We've got a roving mic, and I'll take a couple of questions now. So, anybody? Right. Thank you very much, that lady with her hand up. Thank you very much. That was really um, illuminating uh, talks. Um, I've been thinking about, I have just started thinking about one of the things um, um, Serena mentioned, that the, the genealogy or the development of equivalent to sovereignty, the concept of sovereignty in non-Western mm. situation. And as I was listening to all this, uh, these talks, it just stuck, uh, struck me that, uh, say, in a Security Council, Russia and China tend to be the most kind of um, peers defender of state sovereignty or not being intervened. So had they, they um, had there been different kind of sovereignty, conception of sovereignty in these two? Russia, you know, Russia could be Western, Western country, but in China, where quite different order of political uh, communities existed for a long, long time, 
Um, just wonder if there was, there was any, how can we detect any latitude of different kind of conception of sovereignty if these countries are now using it as if they have all can take in the Western and uh, Westperian conception of sovereignty. Thank you very much. Are there any other questions before we put, go back to the audience? Okay, thank you. We have a question here at the front. Hi. Um, so, to what extent do you think that human rights is compatible with the concept of sovereignty that we have? Mm-hmm. And to what extent is the responsibility to protect representative in, in our concept of sovereignty? Wonderful, thank you. We're going to just talk about the limits to sovereignty, so let's put that question into the next section. And before we do that, let's answer the lady's question about Russia and China as fierce defenders of sovereignty. Are we talking about different conceptions of sovereignty in those contexts? So I'll start with Carmen. Okay, thank you very much for the question. So, so, so clearly one of the more powerful conceptions of sovereignty has been the Westphalian conception of sovereignty, the idea that states should be allowed to have extensive authority over their internal affairs. And then the question is, well, you know, shouldn't we let a thousand flowers bloom in that respect? Shouldn't we have sort of uh, excavate different conceptions of sovereignty and see what kinds of implications they have for political practice? And um, I think to an important extent that has been the case in state practice. Different states understood their conceptions of sovereignty differently, their exercise of political power differently. Uh, States still to this day have different divisions of power between uh, their uh, domestic institutions. So some states, for example, have a very clear separation of powers, while others do not. I would say for the purpose of international law, it can still be the case that states can have very different interpretation of what their internal powers are and how they relate to one another, so what kinds of uh, sort of um, aspects of their sovereignty are important when they interact with one another. But, but for there to be something like uh, uh, certain rules of behavior that bind all states and that uh, support peaceful interaction between them, they have to agree to certain common rules and certain common principles. And maybe those are not necessarily the principles that only come from Westphalian conceptions of sovereignty. But however they negotiate those differences between different practices of sovereignty, ultimately states have to agree on certain very basic norms of political power within states and outside of states so that they create the possibility of peaceful interaction at the international level. So I'll just say two things. One, in answer to this question, I can't answer the sort of genealogy of the Chinese conception, but that broader idea that this is a question that applies to all political societies. And you could say it's, because we're talking about what is sovereignty, that the basic answer tends to be a negative answer. It's not just that the sovereign power is the decider, but the sovereign power is the power that is not told by someone else what to do. And that is a key idea in sovereignty, both internally and externally. And and in a sense, it's understandable for states that have different histories and different traditions, that nonetheless, particularly when they are, to use a kind of 21st century phrase when they're rising powers, which is how some people characterise certain kinds of states, that states that have, in a sense, been on the receiving end at points in their history of being told what to do, 
sovereignty is a very attractive idea. But it also relates, just to touch on this question about that sort of external side of it and the story I was telling, I'm completely aware, I mean, Hobbes, who's a 17th century thinker, maybe, I can't remember if we said that or not, but so we're talking, we're going back a long time, but he has a pretty bad press. Um, and there is something abhorrent about the idea of sovereignty, mm-hmm. the anyone, anything idea. Anyone, you just need a sovereign, can be anyone, and that person or institution can decide on anything. And the obvious response to that, well, what if the anyone is a monster, and what if the anything is killing people? And there isn't really a good answer to that question, but people who defend the modern conception of sovereignty, I think they're all aware of the risks. But there is a positive side to it, and Hobbes would push the positive side to it, which is, it's not the case, this is part of why he gets a bad press, that if you have a world of sovereign states, it's a world of fighting and anarchy and chaos. It's a lawless world, because no one can tell these states what to do. They are not subject to law, so they can do anything they want to each other. That's the... And there's clearly points in history where that looks like it's the correct interpretation. But the the underlying idea, nonetheless, is that in the arena of international politics, the only institutions that can trust states are other states. And that idea has a fairly long history. And they can only trust each other, not because they are subject to a set of laws that constrain them, but because they are, in some sense, equals. But also, crucially, what they trust is that each state has that internal relationship sorted out in whatever terms it is between the people and the people who take decisions for the people. Could be democratic, could be autocratic. But when states deal with each other, they can at least trust that other sovereign states have also got a robust internal relationship. Now, there is a huge downside to that. There's a huge risk to that. But people who defend it also think there's a huge upside to it. And maybe we'll come on to this. I mean, this will lead into what I might say next. The upside being that if you try and limit the power of sovereign states by rules that overlay them, you break that relationship of trust. And the danger of the international legal version of this is that it might be quite good at constraining states, but it undoes the thing that people like Hobbes thought was the only secure basis of peace, which is people trusting their sovereign representatives. That is a deep problem with 21st century politics. Mm. Serena. Yes. So, um, in response to the question... (laughs) That will stay in the podcast. That will stay for posterity. So, I'm I'm not an expert of East Asian history um, myself, and I don't think I'm wrong ever to think that the work needs to be done still in the history of political thought to sort of um, um, take a more comparative... Um, sort of uh, extra, <laughs> not Europe-centered uh, view of uh, concepts akin to sovereignty. And then the point is, uh, what are you comparing to sovereignty? What kind of ideas? I think one very fruitful one would be that of empire, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing, the little that I know about the way the Chinese empire worked was that it had a system of tributary states and that this creates a really interesting, complicated Um, kind of um, system of satellites around the bigger (laughs) sun-like in the middle. It wasn't just China. If you think about European history, the Ottoman Empire had uh, tributary states. For example, a very small state in early modern Europe was the Republic of Ragusa, which is uh, the modern city of Dubrovnik, 
right? Ragusa thought of itself as an independent city-state, but in fact it was paying tribute to the Ottomans. So if, there were two different visions of who was the sovereign. The Ottomans thought that they were the sovereign and that the Republic was paying homage to them, but the Ragusans presented themselves as an independent Republic that is actually dealing with all of these much bigger, more threatening powers. So um, this is not really a positive answer to your question, but more of a call for more research on the subject, because I think you're right that there are all kinds of traditions of thought about where ultimate power is located and how it is exercised, that have been somehow subsumed in the modern idea of sovereignty, but still carry some of their history. And it's very important that we kind of um, illuminate that history, that we make it explicit, that we discuss it, because perhaps there's more of it in modern conceptions of sovereignty around the world than we suspect. So. Thank you, fantastic. So we're going to move on now to think about the limits of sovereignty. So what are the limits or what ought to be the limits? And it would be great to touch on that very important question about whether human rights and institutions like the International Criminal Court are compatible with sovereignty or represent limitations on that sovereignty. So let's start with Serena again, if you could give us a bit of historical background here. Yes, it's a bit difficult to sort of give you an overview. I would say that for, because as we've heard and as David has said several times, the, particularly the early modern concept of sovereignty is really about um, creating a conceptual tool that is all about absoluteness and ultimate power. Then ideally on earth, because sovereignty is a man-made thing, it's not uh, a natural thing and it's not a divinely created thing. So on earth, there is nothing that is more powerful than the sovereign. That's the whole point of having sovereignty as a concept. So what could be a limit to the power of the, of the, of the sovereign? If I had to summarize sort of classes of limits, I would say one thing the sovereign cannot do is to change what is outside of human agency. For example, the laws of nature. The sovereign may ask you to believe that the earth is flat, but it's not really able to make the earth flat if the earth is not flat, right? So the sovereign cannot change the laws of nature. This is important, I think, for the development of the discourse on human rights because earlier, the earlier iteration, the earlier sort of version of human rights was the idea of natural rights, of certain rights that are actually from nature, from human nature, from how human bodies are made and for what a human being needs to live. So if you want to actually root rights in nature, then that is a good conceptual way of taking them away from the remit of the sovereign because the sovereign doesn't have power on what is from nature. There is a tradition of thought about that. Another of the limits is obviously if you believe in, the, in God, so the sovereign cannot change, cannot change divine laws, cannot change religious precepts, although it can force you to actually ignore them or disobey them, but yet it would be, uh, it would be um, uh, acting unjustly and perhaps it should be resisted. There is a very, very strong tradition of thinking of where is the point where you're actually supposed to resist what the government is asking you to do and religion figures very, very strongly there, obviously. And otherwise, I would say that all the limits that sovereigns observe are those that are self-imposed. That is, 
towards its own citizens the laws that the sovereign makes. So the sovereign might decide that the laws it makes are to be observed by everyone, including the sovereign. And it might decide that, for example, agreements it enters into, treatises with other states or maybe international communities it becomes a member of, uh, need sort of put some limits that the sovereign should observe. I'm afraid it's still the case that, of course, because the sovereign, if you think of the sovereign as an absolute and ultimate entity, it can always withdraw from those. So in a way, the limits exist as long as the sovereign agrees to observe them. So I was wondering, when Carmel was speaking, um, of course, uh, these international institutions put, put limits on what states, or aim to put limits on what states can do, but a state could decide in, in, in the present kind of landscape to simply withdraw from those communities or just ignore right, international treatises. And this is possible because those agreements are, those limits are not actual limits, are limits that the sovereign has voluntarily entered into. And so they're sort of limits it agrees to observe. So. Thanks, Marina. That's the perfect moment for Carmen to come in and tell us something about her fascinating piece on divided sovereignty and the limits right. of sovereignty. Right, right. And, and at the heart of um, this book th- is, is very much this question that both David and Serena very eloquently address, which is how do you conceive the relationship between citizens or those who hold uh, popular sovereignty and their political institutions? Mm-hmm. And that's a sort of a very <laughs> difficult relation to, to resolve. And my argument is that traditional conceptions of sovereignty don't uh, give us an adequate answer to what that relationship is, right? So we, we have to pivot on the following conundrum. We want state institutions to protect our interests and our rights, and we want to give them sufficient power to do so, and states need to be indeed powerful to protect ourselves from each other and from outside um, uh, dangers. But the same power that is used to protect us can be turned against us, right, when state institutions become co-opted, corrupt, violent, and so on. And so uh, traditionally, there hasn't been a good answer to the question of how you protect uh, citizens when state institutions turn against them. The traditional answer has been to leave states with absolute ultimate power, But what that does is, in the situation where states violate the rights of their citizens, and I'm not talking about uh, sort of uh, ordinary violations, but very serious mass violations of citizens' rights, such as genocide and crimes against humanity, that in those, the the traditional conception of sovereignty ensures that there's no uh, higher level, there's no accountability for uh, what happens to political officials that commit those abuses, that they are going to be the ultimate power and the ultimate judge of what is right and wrong, just and unjust within a political community. And that's not a satisfactory answer because they're not going to hold themselves accountable for those kinds of violations. Now, initially, the answer to this question of how do we ensure that citizens are protected against the abuses of their citizens have to 
have been to turn to the design of domestic political institutions. And we have made quite a remarkable progress in, in uh, designing political institutions in advanced liberal democracies that actually offer a much greater protection to their citizens that, than they have in the past. Things like uh, the rule of law, due process, the idea that political officials should be bound by generally recognized rules, uh, the division of authority, and so on. Those have been tremendous advances. But, but even so, in uh, Western democracies, those are still fragile and very young, and the uh, advances can be reversed. But there are lots of countries around the globe where those uh, uh, institutional features are just not present. And so people living in those countries are very vulnerable to the abuses of their states. So my argument is to rethink our conception of sovereignty, to think about giving authority to states and institutions to protect our rights, but, but delegating some of that authority to international institutions with a very limited mandate, which is to intervene to protect or to hold accountable states when they commit massive violations of human rights. And I'm thinking of institutions such as the International Criminal Court or some sort of institution that, for example, would put in place uh, something like humanitarian intervention to prevent catastrophes that are ongoing or are about, are about to happen. And here, um, the question is, well, can you really divide, right, sovereign authority, right? And so David mentioned Hobbes and, and others who were really very skeptical that something like political authority it can be divided without sort of fundamentally undoing the relationship between citizens and their states. And here I take issue with Hobbes. I think Hobbes uh, had the, the wrong conception of sovereignty Partly because sovereignty is not an on and off switch, is not a sort of a dichotomous uh, yes or no variable. Sovereignty is a bundle of political functions, and you can divide those political functions, move them upward or downward at different levels of political governance. Uh, we, we already do that within states. We have uh, cities and towns, we have counties, we have states and federal systems, they have political responsibility, responsibilities of sovereignty, I argue we should do the same for a very limited uh, sort of set of functions with international institutions to just make sure that they keep states within the legitimate bounds of their authority with respect to their responsibilities to their citizens. So when I talk about divided sovereignty, I don't talk about sovereignty in the popular sovereignty sense. I talk about sovereignty in the sense of who has the ultimate power to make decisions with respect to uh, our interests and our rights? And I think when we talk about that, uh, it makes sense to think of the sovereignty as being divided between states and international institutions, because that's the only way, really, to uh, to fix the sort of the the problems with the traditional conceptions of sovereignty. So institutions like the International Criminal Court have some sovereignty? They're bearers of sovereignty in some sense? Yes, just because they have, they would have ultimate decision power. With, they, ha they would have jurisdictional authority, right, mm -hmm. with respect to violations that 
political representative would commit against their own citizens. So, for example, mm -hmm. there's an arrest warrant right now. Mm -hmm. It's a very controversial arrest warrant mm -hmm. for the president of Sudan, right, mm -hmm. Omar al-Bashir, issued by the, uh, the uh, International Criminal Court. Mm -hmm. uh, at the behest of the UN Security Council, Sudan is not a member of the ICC, so the ICC mm -hmm. couldn't have done it on its own. Mm -hmm. But the UN Security Council had investigated and found very credible evidence that Omar al-Bashir had engaged in planning and directing its political subordinates to commit genocide against three ethnic groups, and which have sort of its, its, his decisions have led to the outright killing of 35,000 individuals and many more uh, that have been injured and targeted. So there's an arrest warrant for his arrest. Uh, he has been reelected as the head of state and so far has eluded the jurisdiction of the ICC, um, and, and it's, it's a very tricky sort of uh, proposition to indict a sitting head of state, but it is precisely for those uh, situations in which individuals living in that state have no other recourse to justice that an institution like the ICC would exercise supreme authority, right, mm -hmm. over states. The buck wouldn't stop mm -hmm. with the state. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. So, David, over to you. Could you tell us something about the limits of sovereignty in practice? And maybe could you touch on the question of whether the member states of the European yeah, Union say, are so sovereign? Someone should talk about Brexit. Before yes. <laughs> uh, I just want to pick up on one thing that Serena said, because, um, I mean, that was also a, a painting a pretty bleak picture of what sovereignty is. I, don't th I mean, I agree, the sovereign can't make the earth flat. I also don't think sovereign sovereigns can make people believe that the earth is flat. I don't think that's part of sovereignty. Um, and, and some of the people we've been talking about, including Hobbes, didn't think that sovereigns could change people's beliefs. Of course, there have been states that have tried to do that, particularly yes. in the 20th century, but not because they're sovereign states, but because they are, in some sense, totalitarian states. And also, there are lots of people who try to change people's beliefs that aren't sovereign states. In fact, it's probably easier to change people's beliefs, not in the context of a sovereign state, but in the context of a cult or something like that. But a sovereign state can imprison you if you transgress. Oh, yeah, no. apply coercive power yeah, the, other entities. Absolutely. The sovereign state can say that the signs and symbols of what you might or might not believe are unacceptable. Mm. And the sovereign state could even decide that this counts as a belief. But I don't think the sovereign state we should think as part of its remit as being able to change people's beliefs. Um, I mean, I think when that happens, I mean, it's part of the challenge of talking about sovereignty. Mm. There's a temptation because it's such a kind of sweeping concept that we hoover everything up underneath it. And I kind of want to defend it as a, in a way, a more limited concept. It doesn't have many limits, but it's not trying to do everything. It's just trying to do some things. So in the Brexit context... Um, I guess the question is, was the European Union a limitation on UK sovereignty? Um, and I think there are plausible reasons for saying that it was. Um, it's complicated. But I think one version of it that builds on what I was saying earlier is that, and this is an argument that's been made recently by uh, Richard Tuck and Chris Bickerton, um, who are two prominent academics who have bravely <laughs> come out as being pro-Brexit. Uh, and they say sovereignty is vital and that people who say it's a nebulous concept are ignoring the fact that it is still the central concept of our politics. The challenge that the EU poses to the idea of sovereignty is if at the heart of the relationship of sovereignty is the relationship between the people and the sovereign power in a given state or the representative power. The thing about the EU is that 
its rules are made by those representatives mm. and it doesn't have an equivalent relationship itself underpinning it. And that's not necessarily a problem, but it can be a problem for the member states because if the member states, if the members of the member states still believe that's the primary relationship of politics, then to have a political arrangement where the rules are drawn up simply by the representatives acting in various international forums with the people not getting any particular purchase on those decisions is an affront to sovereignty because that's the sovereign relationship. So I think there is a case for saying that. <clears throat> I think there are also reasons for thinking that that case can be easily overstated. I think there are two reasons why it could be overstated. One, if people are feeling that somehow the relationship between themselves and their sovereign representatives is somehow being stretched or limited or thinned out or even broken, it's not clear that the EU is primarily to blame for that, or indeed institutions like the EU are primarily to blame for that, because it's happening all around the world in all sorts of states that aren't subject to those kind of relationships. I mean, some of that dynamic, which is basically the people feeling that their representatives have become a club among themselves in which they stitch up the rules between them without reference back to the fundamental relationship in modern politics. People think that in the United States, and they elected Donald Trump. People think that in India, and they elected Modi. People are thinking that all around the world. And it may be that they're thinking that all around the world because in these different places they see an equivalent of a kind of members club that excludes them. But actually, they're not the same, these members clubs. They, they aren't all on an EU pattern. They're not even close. I'm not sure what the equivalent of the EU is in the American case or in the Indian case. And then the second reason, I think the bigger reason why it's an argument that has weaknesses, is that the assumption behind it is that the EU has limited national sovereignty. So if you can get out of the EU, you rescue national exactly. sovereignty. And the national sovereignty is something that revives in the absence of that kind of members' club arrangement. Now, it might, and the Brexiteer hope is that it will, but there are many reasons to think that the, the strains in the relationship in our domestic politics have problems that are internal to our domestic politics. Mm -hmm. And if you just put it at the most basic level, those tensions between parliamentary sovereignty and popular sovereignty, mm -hmm. the, the suspicion and mistrust that people have of their parliamentary representatives, I think it's... I'm trying to think of the polite word for it. I think it's wishful to believe that withdrawing from the EU will, in its own terms, restore trust in our own arrangements between the people and their representatives. And the thing that always struck me is the great weakness in the Brexit case for reconstituting UK national sovereignty. Is if, if you were going to reconstitute UK national sovereignty, you had to have a very serious and well-thought-out account of domestic politics and how it was going to change. Mm -hmm. And yet the striking thing, it seems to me, about the Brexit case is it had very little to say about what would change in domestic politics. Mm -hmm. But I think we've seen that if you simply leave the EU and basically do not reform British domestic politics, including, I suspect, reform it constitutionally, all you're going to do is just focus people's attention on the fact that that model doesn't work anymore. Can I pick up on something that you said? Yes, David, please Particularly do. on this, I think, shift. Now, we often use interchangeably the expression popular sovereignty mm -hmm. and national sovereignty, mm -hmm. but 
these two mm. words are not the same. Yeah. The people are not the nation necessarily. So to ask the question, who are the people, is still a very topical question. We could imagine that the people are all the people of Europe, mm. right? And that would be popular sovereignty um, in, that is actually being impeded by the national sovereignties. So somehow one of the, the problems that I see with the, the, the way sovereignty is being used in the British context, I'm, I'm not British as it's probably obvious, but um, one thing that really struck me in the, in, the, um, in the months leading to the referendum was that the nature of the referendum itself was not discussed. So that what the referendum was and what kind of uh, um, legal status it had and whether it was... Uh, um, an exercise of popular sovereignty at all uh, was not really settled in advance. It was actually only discussed afterwards. It was a really strange thing because there are ways in which one can see sovereignty interfering with uh, democracy <laughs> somehow, particularly at the European level. Uh, I think I'm not an expert at all of EU matters, but there is very strongly a sense that creating a direct link between all the people who live in Europe and European institutions undermines the national sovereignties. So somehow the, the sovereignties of the states are undermining a development that goes in a more democratic, popular sovereignty direction. I don't know if this is clear, maybe it's garbled, but I thought that we shouldn't be using nation and people interchangeably because the nation is one thing that has as you know, all kind of echoes and a special resonance that has perhaps some sort of uh, linguistic, ethnic connotations, historically certainly does have, and the people is a different beast. It's a different beast, right? The people can be not national. Yeah, and of course the other way this could go is that the argument could be if, if what matters is that relationship between a people of some kind and sovereign representative institutions, you can try and recreate that at the European right. level. Of course, you can try. I think there is a long tradition of thinking it's going to be very hard. There are not geographical limits and not exclusively cultural or national limits, but a combination of things that make the greater expansion more and more difficult. Yeah. There are large states. The United States of America is a large state made up of what had once thought of themselves as semi-sovereign Entities. But it took a long time in a civil war and all sorts of things to get there. Um, it's not an easy process. I think that sometimes there's an assumption that you can do it quickly. I don't think you can. But the other great tension that you touched on there is just the idea of the referendum mm. itself, which is at some level, I think, often understood, in, particularly in the Brexit context, to be a manifestation of popular sovereignty. But, of course, it wasn't. Yes, we discovered that later. Yeah, but also, the, yeah, the referendum was a gift of Parliament. I mean, it, the only reason we had a referendum was because a sovereign Parliament allowed us to have one, and a sovereign Parliament can decide what it means, and a sovereign Parliament can decide to have another one, or a sovereign Parliament can decide to ignore the... I mean, it's still... The sovereignty in the UK case is still resides in Parliament. And we're not close to having resolved that, because I do think... A, an impression was created, at least, that the referendum itself was an expression of a kind of popular sovereignty, whereas technically it wasn't. It was Parliament asking for a view about its own sovereignty. And it's not clear yet by any means that the people who voted for Brexit are comfortable with the amount of parliamentary sovereignty and possibly even executive sovereignty that will result from it. Okay, thank you. So some really interesting ideas there about the potential tension between popular sovereignty and parliamentary sovereignty, for instance. So I'll open the floor again to any questions at hey, look, this we've point. We've mentioned Brexit and suddenly <laughs> a sea of hands goes up. 
Thank you very much. <coughs> okay, so I'll take one question over here, and then we'll go to the lady behind. Put your hand up, Sue. Yeah. Um, I guess this is a question for David in particular, which is, I think one of the interesting things about the Tuck-Bickerton critique of uh, European Union is not that necessarily the disconnect between the sovereign and the people is caused by the European Union, but that it gives those sovereign representatives an excuse to pass the buck and to say, well, it's not our fault because it's not our decision anymore. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if you think that that has some bearing on, on the question as well. Okay, and we'll go to the lady behind and then we'll come back to the panel. Thank you. It is about Brexit that I wanted to ask a question about. It is permitted. Um, have you heard any really good arguments that the Brexiteers made on the basis of sovereignty being so important? It's not so much about immigration and so on and so forth. I haven't, but maybe I haven't heard that many Brexiteers um, in detail talking or writing. But when they've said... Um, it's all about getting back our sovereignty. What the hell did they mean? Did they ever explain it? Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Those two questions connect very nicely together because the Bickerton-Tuck piece is a good uh, attempt at justifying yeah, this I mean, sovereignty. In a sense, that's, that was a good answer to the question, which is what it's about is politicians avoiding having something to hide behind. But the point is... The hiding behind is fake, right? They're saying it wasn't our decision, but it was. Mm. It was their collective agreement taken without, in, in some or other democratic form, popular involvement. But they can dress it up in the context of their domestic politics as something beyond their ability to control. And that argument for sovereignty is that it's meant to be... I mean, I'm always suspicious of arguments that say the great thing about this is that it clarifies politics. It always reminds me of the First World War. When it started, people thought it would be a wonderful clarifying event. Um, but that is part of this, that the EU has really muddied some of the clear relationships on which democratic politics depends and that what the UK has done by withdrawing is brought these back into focus. But I completely agree that these kinds of arguments being made by academics were not heard in the referendum campaign, but I think that's a function of referendum campaigns in that uh, the, the, the people who ran the Brexit campaign were very honest about this. They did a lot of testing of messages to find the ones that worked, Take back control worked as a message, that that was clear, and you could say that's a variant on the sovereignty theme, but it turned out that message worked better if you could get the letters NHS into the same communication. And that's a fact. I mean, it's, it, it, it turns out they were right, in a way. Um, whatever people think about the, the truth or falsity of some of the claims that were made, it is the case that that was a very, very resonant message for people. And I don't think you can hoover that up under the heading of sovereignty. And I kind of feel on this panel I'm sort of defending sovereignty. I think it's a really important idea. I think it gets blamed for a lot of things. I don't think you can blame the concept of sovereignty for the fact that we as human beings are responsive to messages that relate control to the NHS. That's not the fault of sovereignty. That's the fault of human beings. Carmen, do you want to come in here? 
Sure, and I just thought maybe I can go back to the previous question, which I didn't really take up, and to mm -hmm. Serena's challenge, you know. Um, so the, the previous question was, is the idea of human rights compatible with sort of current understandings of sovereignty? And it depends what you mean by it. If what you mean by it uh, is can states respect human rights, sort of just the way they are now, is they certainly can, right? And and many states have uh, have made great advances. Uh, you know, sovereign states are some of the greatest advocates of uh, of human rights protections. But if you think of uh, sort of in the sense of what happens when states don't respect human rights, then um, is there something like uh, a very strong sense of uh, there being consequences and accountability? I think there the question is a lot more complicated. In some cases there is, in a lot of cases there isn't. And I would say, I would say um, precisely because we have a system where states can opt out a lot of these, uh, a, a lot of these international treaties that protect human rights, is that ultimately uh, the conception of sovereignty that, that we're defending, you know, this traditional conception of sovereignty is not compatible with human rights understood as, as limits on what states can do. And this is what we need to change, both in our understanding of sovereignty and in the rules that we, uh, we have for dealing with sovereign states. Thanks. Serena, do you want to say anything? <laughs> Maybe the question about whether I've heard any arguments uh, about sovereignty that were convincing and interesting, no. Um, and I'm not, I, I actually, I take on board what David is saying. Sovereignty is important. I mean, it's easy, I think, for, ev for everyone to imagine a case where you don't really know where ultimately power resides, and this would create a rather chaotic and perhaps a violent situation where, for example, you can opt to go to a certain tribunal instead of another that have exactly the same competence, uh, and they could, uh, they could uh, give you two different decisions, and then you would apply the one that you prefer, and so on. I mean, you can easily see what are the problems with it. But, uh, perhaps the, 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 the issue is that this idea of control, which is a very powerful idea, is itself a fiction. We don't have very much control, even in modern national communities, isn't it? We're consulted once every you know, few years. Uh, we're, we're, we're given very, very limited options <laughs> to choose from. So the one thing I didn't quite see was uh, in what way you know, being part of the EU was so much worse than simply being part of the United Kingdom and having full citizenship. If anything, it adds a layer. Like you have more elections, you can choose more things. In fact, many people in Britain seem to vote differently in different elections for different parties. If anything, this adds <laughs> to the amount of voice that they have rather than diminish it. Mm. Okay, brilliant, thank you. So we're just going into the last 20 minutes. And for this final section, I want to ask our panelists, well, we've heard already that sovereignty clearly has great appeal to lots of people. Now I want to hear from you, why, if at all, is it important? And indeed, does it remain a useful concept in the 21st century? So here I'm going to start with David. Okay, so I'll say something uh, specific in a minute and begin with something general. Um, I think you could ask yourself the question, what's the relevance of sovereignty in a networked world? Mm. Because it seems to me there's a fundamental tension between the idea of sovereignty 
and the idea of a network. I don't think, I don't, I'll, I'm happy to be corrected on this, I don't think the idea of sovereignty fits into the concept of a network. Networks, they have nodes and they have things that can cause them to fail and so on. But that model doesn't fit. And I think we do increasingly live in a networked world. And we also live in a world of extraordinarily powerful new kinds of political actors and agents. And again, I'm not sure the concept of sovereignty helps and it can be misleading. If we think the concept of sovereignty is the most important concept in politics, and in defending it, part of my defense of it is that it's not, it's just often a useful concept, we might miss some of the fundamental challenges that we face. So if you think about the concept of sovereignty and where does Facebook fit into that? Facebook is not a sovereign entity, I think, in any sense. Mm -hmm. The weird thing about Facebook is that as a network, there's no sovereignty concept there. And then as a corporation and an organization, it's practically medieval in the sense that Mark Zuckerberg is the king or the prince and everybody else does what he says. It's not actually Hobbesian sovereignty because there is no people there. There's just his servants. So it doesn't fit. Um, and I think that's a real issue for us. And then related to that is, we haven't mentioned this, but there is the sovereign individual which underpins that whole modern conception of sovereignty. And actually some of the pre-modern conceptions do not have at their heart the idea of sovereign individuals because individuals do not have that kind of integrity. But in the modern concept, if you're going to build it up from popular authorization and legitimacy. It comes from individuals and their own integrity and indeed, in some sense, their own sovereignty which they hand over. And again, I'm not totally sure that the kind of lives that we're going to be increasingly living in the 21st century, the sovereign individual is going to be the building block of politics. I mean, this is possibly a bleak... And, you know, there are versions of this. There's the sort of Yuval Harari version of this dystopian thing. I mean, his line is that the 21st century will be the story of the de-individualization of all of us because we are just going to be spread out and thinned out as pieces of data. That is, accumulations of data, WhatsApp over here, Twitter over there, you know, someone tracking our behaviors over here, a bank account over here. There's nothing there which is us by sort of 2050. Now, that may or may not be true, but at least it's possible to imagine that we are going to go some way down the road in which the individual gets thinned out and if the individual gets thinned out and somehow scattered or dispersed and I'm not really talking about because we will have machines implanted in us I just mean that a, a mechanized network world will treat us as discrete pieces of information and if we are discrete pieces of information I don't think the sovereignty concept works that's the general pretentious bit the provocative <laughs> political bit is in this post-Brexit future, there's a scenario in which, again, I'm not sure where sovereignty fits because we've seen it, we've described it as the classical kind of tension between representative and popular, uh, the referendum and the parliament. If the next government is a Labour government under Jeremy Corbyn, then you also have the Labour Party as a social movement being pitted against both parliament and the people. It's a three-way thing. So you do have, I mean, there are lots of variations in democratic politics, but one that we may be coming closer towards is that you have representative institutions, you have people capable of voting in referendums, and then you have parties or movements or membership organisations. And you can have a version of this politics where a lot of the ultimate decisions reside with the members of the party. Now, I don't think if Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister, the Labour Party will be sovereign. 
On the other hand, if Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister, the members, not the parliamentary Labour Party, but the members of the Labour Party will play a very, very significant role in shaping British government, at least in the ideal version of it. And again, I just don't think that really we have good models for understanding that, certainly not in the classic terms of sovereignty. And that may be symptomatic of a wider trend towards social movements and forms of membership, which are not either memberships of, of a people or memberships of a parliament or a representative body or an international body, but memberships of social entities. And those social entities are not sovereign, but those social entities might decide our collective fate. So I'm quite keen on the idea of sovereignty, and I think it's done. <laughs> Very provocative. And on to Carmen. <laughs> So let me take slight issue with that and, uh, <laughs> and, um, and disagree that the dystopian future that you so um, uh, beautifully and colorfully portrayed is quite as close as we, um, as, as you said, David, for, for a number of reasons. One is, uh, so I do think sovereignty needs to be limited, but I do think it plays an important role in in embodying a fundamental moral idea, and that fundamental moral idea is that it allows a group of people to fashion their political institutions according to their own idea of justice and according to their interests and needs and to the priorities they set for those interests and needs. So that's the moral idea. There's also the idea that sovereign states, when they work well, they work really well. We're living today in unprecedented eras of security and prosperity. And part of that uh, gain and progress is due to the ability of sovereign states to provide uh, peace and the environments uh, and the laws in which we're able to um, create wealth and engage with one another on an equal basis. Indeed, the very fact that I have the luxury to have this conversation about sovereignty here tonight is in part due to the fact that we live in a, in a prosperous society that allows us to have interests uh, beyond uh, basic security and the satisfaction of our most basic needs. That's a difficult argument to make, but I think it's plausible to say that the modern state has been associated and is at the root of the progress we made on a lot of these important areas. One of them is the idea that the sovereign state has contributed uh, quite significantly to ideals of equality uh, and the protection of individual rights. There have been several waves or phases, revolutions in rights that have been uh, the state has been sort of the, 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 the battleground for those revolutions, initially with the French and American Revolution and the universality of human rights, and, and after the Second World War with this idea that um, uh, civil and political rights are important, but uh, also uh, important are uh, rights of equality, non-discrimination, of, of treating minorities and women with respect and so on. So I think these are some of the reasons why our future is going to very much be entrenched in our past and that the sovereign state is still going to play a fundamental role in shaping our lives because they do have the power to do so and we want them to do so. We're giving our political officials the authority to have quite a lot of um, 
of, uh, of discretion on, on deciding how political communities should, um, should govern their, their own, uh, their own uh, internal affairs. Uh, but, but it's true, of course, that there are unprecedented challenges to that. It's, the, it's, it's, it's corporations, it's, you know, it's, it's Twitter revolutions, it's, uh, it's a rapidly changing uh, environment. But, that, but, but thinking that that's going to cause the death of the state is premature. Um, and so the question is, the state is going to be here for a long time. How do we make it better? How do we design institutions that are going to enable states to better cope with the challenges they face, including challenges such as climate change, which are, you know, raising issues of sort of international cooperation to an unprecedented level. Um, so the state is here to state, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's not a bad thing. Terrific. So we're just going to hear a quick word from Serena, and then I'm going to come back to you for a final round of questions. So my very short answer to the question, if it's still useful, would be, I think it's going to be useful, but I wonder for whom or to whom. Somehow, um, I think the idea of sovereignty is clearly useful, but I am a bit worried about who are the actors that are actually profiting from this discourse. And this actually came from the work I did on the essay that you Mm. cited, because in the 14th century, when this... uh, theorist of popular sovereignty called Marsilius of Padua was writing, he, I found it meaningful and important that the discourse of po- popular sovereignty was more emerging at a point in time when actually his own homeland, his own city, was moving from a more democratic to a more authoritarian regime. So that actually there are several instances in Western European history where actually you see the discourse of popular sovereignty or similar discourses emerging at a moment where the form of government is becoming more authoritarian. So I'm worried about that. (laughs) Thank you, Serena. I'll take some questions now. So we've got one here. Keep your hand up so that, yes, that that lady with that can give us a wave. Um, so I wanted to pick up on something mentioned at the beginning and then maybe related to Brexit. So um, we heard that states are equally sovereign, but they're not equally powerful. And I wanted to ask something about that distinction between sovereignty and power and how that the conflation of the two ideas may be featured in the Brexit debate and how maybe by withdrawing from the European Union the United Kingdom could be becoming more sovereign in a way but wouldn't actually be able to exercise the power in a meaningful way. Thank you. And this gentleman here at the front had a question. If we can bring the microphone. Wave. (laughs) There we are. (laughs) Thank you. Um, My question is uh, regarding um, sovereignty and accountability in regard to um, what you can think about sovereignty. and, for example, the, the, the Maastricht Treaty in 1993 to where we are now and looking at what direction that time is going to take is um, how, um, in relation to the um, fundamental, fundamental human rights and, the, for example, the, the review of the European chart, um, what is your thought, in a way, uh, on, also, um, thinking that most uh, EU citizens 
um, all being able to vote at one time, for example, that's got no right to vote. To what um, instant do you, do you see um, the term of sovereignty and how do you see that term develop in the future? Did you catch that second question? Yeah. Okay, so we've got the question about the distinction between sovereignty and power and the questions about uh, Maastricht and European citizens' rights to vote. We'll start with Carmen. Um, maybe I'll... Um, you want a moment to think? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get a lot. David? Uh, so on the, the... Yeah, it's a very good question about sovereignty and power and it relates to the idea of control. Um, control can be understood as a form of power... Or control can be understood as something in which essentially you occasionally get the opportunity to push back, which is not necessarily the same as power. I think part of the genius of it was that it it suggested both, but it's certainly possible that those two things start to come apart in that the kind of control we're taking back is the ability not to control anyone or anything, but occasionally to say, stop, or we've had enough, or... We've, we've had enough of you, we want to replace you with you, which is a form of control, but it's a pretty limited form of power. Um, and, yeah, I suspect, broadly speaking, power trumps sovereignty. Um, I mean, power is the bigger concept. Um, sovereignty is a, a version of it. So it does matter a lot. I think it's, yeah, I, th- no, I don't think um, that if, as a result of the Brexit vote, uh, the UK becomes a less powerful state, it will be because it has more sovereignty. Um, I think the forces that lead to that might have been forces that hold anyway. Um, It's not at all clear that the European Union will continue to acquire more and more power. I mean, it is true to relate to what I said a little bit earlier that one of the things that strikes me about Brexit is that we have chosen to leave the only organisation in the world that currently seems to have, if not the power, then at least the appetite and the capacity to take on the world's most powerful corporations, which are Google and Facebook and others. And that's striking. Um, And and that's being done by something which is not a sovereign entity, which again makes me feel that sovereignty may be something. And it also relates to this question about EU citizens and their rights to vote here. I mean, there's... I think... The consequence of the Brexit vote, maybe understandably, is to put the focus back on those basic questions of sovereignty again, which is who gets to vote, who gets to decide, who gets to vote, which are not the basic questions in a kind of member state club in which rules and arrangements are being negotiated and are evolving and are never quite fixed. I mean, it it definitely focuses our minds on core democratic questions. And then in a way, it's an open question as to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, there may be good or bad answers to those questions. It may be that the good answer is everyone who lives here should be entitled to vote here. In the same way with the Scottish referendum, it was a very difficult question to answer. Who gets to vote in that referendum? Is it people who live in Scotland or people who are Scottish? These are really difficult questions to answer. They may have better or worse answers. But the focus on sovereignty makes them the questions, and it's possible to regret a world in which they are the questions, or it's possible to celebrate a world in which they are the questions. And it slightly depends on how much you want those questions to be the defining questions of our democratic politics. And I'm torn on that. 
Yes, I don't have very much to add except to say that, yes, uh, power and sovereignty are not the same thing. And in fact, a sovereignty is an attempt to pretend that uh, there is some sort of order that everyone is equal, every state is equal on a certain level, while in fact the glaring truth, the, the one that everyone can, say, can see, is that uh, the United States is not the same thing as, uh, you know, Mozambique. Um, so, um, yes, and... Um, and EU citizenship, I, as I said before, I think that there was an element of addition to the citizenship that all, if I understood your question correctly, uh, to the citizenship that we already enjoy as mm, uh, citizens of distinct member states. And that, to me, that would be a loss for the UK uh, voter, but it may be true, as David says, that it actually helps putting the emphasis back on what really matters and can be controlled, if that's what you meant. Um, I still think that it does matter to vote for the EU Parliament, precisely for those reasons that, uh, that David mentioned, that it is, um, the EU is functioning as a sort of uh, collective, perhaps an amplifier of power, right? Because member states can do things via the EU that alone they could do, but a bit less effectively. Perhaps they couldn't do at all. I hope I understood your question correctly. Um, sure, I can. I, the, the question of, I thought the question of, uh, of uh, sovereignty and power was really important because one of the challenges, of course, is that sovereign states with different powers have very different effects, both on sort of their own internal politics, but also on the politics of other states. And one of the challenges that we face sort of in a world in which we're increasingly connected is how we limit the, uh, the unwanted effects of, or the unwanted influence of powerful states on the weaker states. And, um, and I don't think we have a good answer to that. I, I think part of the answer is to have uh, uh, to have rules about how states befa- behave with respect to one another that, um, that, that set limit to that influence. But, but again, how do we get to that system where the, those rules are actually effective um, is, is very difficult when we have such a strong commitment to the conception of sovereignty. So I think, I think that is going to be one of the fundamental challenges on which sort of challenging institutions like the WTO, for example, rest, right? The, the idea with the WTO is we have states that have so much, um, so much more input and influence on what the rules are, uh, and they end up, they end up uh, creating, those institutions end up creating rules that really disfavor and disadvantage the weaker states, and that's, that's sort of a fundamental issue with living in a world where states have equal sovereignty but very different power. Well, thank you so much. I'm certainly going to go away and mull over the question of whether sovereignty is important but done. Thanks to all of you for the fantastic questions, and please join me in thanking our wonderful panel. (laughs) 